0: Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I'm Will, or One Billion Elephants.
1: And I'm Leah, the Pacific Trash Vortex.
0: You might be wondering what do these two have in common? Well, you're gonna find out in just a little bit, because today we are all about saving the world. Woohoo! Or at least trying very hard to save the world. But first we can save your life.
1: Or at least encourage you to take actions that may save your own life.
0: Yeah, like what what would that take if I were to say Hey, buddy, it's time for you to go do that life-saving thing.
1: And let's point out that this particular life-saving thing is uncomfortable, unpleasant, considered in some ways taboo, involves...
0: Fingers, places.
1: Cameras, places, and also fasting and purging, potentially taking a considerable quantity of sedatives and having to have somebody to drive you home.
0: How much do we have to pay you to go to Reading Festival?
1: Now, this is not reading... I'm not sure what... You've obviously had more exciting festival experiences than I have. This is not about festivals. This is about colonoscopy.
0: Which does have, like you say, that stigma of, well, this is going to be one of the worst things you can do to a man's body. It's like, okay, but you might not die.
1: Let's not limit this to men. I think people in general often are quite sensitive about the idea of having things put up their bottoms because they're going to get right up in there, right into your large intestine.
0: The more you describe it, the less $100 sounds like enough. But, according to new research from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, offering $100 as a little incentive to get people to go to colonoscopy screenings improves the rates of colon cancer screening and hopefully then prevention or early diagnosis.
1: The study included 2,245 people from 50 to 64 years old. They were split into three groups. One group were sent an email requesting they actively opt in or opt out of a screening colonoscopy. Another subset got the same message plus an offer of $100 in cash if they booked a colonoscopy within three months. And the control group just had an email with the phone number to schedule a screening. The group who were offered the $100 were... More than twice as likely to book a colonoscopy in that three-month period than the other groups.
0: Twice as many is very good, but that is still only a difference of 1.5% of people approached and 3.7% of people approached. And I work as a cancer reporter. I hear about colon cancer diagnosis, treatments, screenings every day. And let me just say this now. You should really... Go to your screenings, $100 or not, because best outcome, you know you've not got cancer. Worst outcome, you find out that you've got cancer and can now do something about it. It really... I'd like to see that be higher, but if that takes more than $100 to accomplish, then that's not up to me.
1: Obviously, the big problem is that a colonoscopy does involve taking most of a day off work. It involves fasting it involves having to have somebody to take you home or having to have a hospital bed for the night which in america can get quite expensive true so it's not surprising that the uptake really is not that high but 3.7 percent compared to 1.5 or 1.6 percent is a spectacular improvement you know out of a million people if these numbers translate bigger that is going to make a huge difference
0: And on a similar note of rewarding good behaviour...
1: Not even rewarding the good behaviour, but incentivising good behaviour. Saying, if you put in the effort that we are requesting of you, there will be a
0: reward. The reward, in this case, being $28 per hectare. You might have gathered we're no longer talking about colons at this point, but payments to farmers in Uganda to not cut down trees...
1: And to protect areas of forest in their neighbourhoods.
0: Turns out to have exactly that effect. I'm going to pull a quote here from lead author and Northwestern University economist Seema Jayachandran, saying, We often focus our environmental programmes on our own country, which is important, but it's easy to forget that a lot of the best opportunities lie in the developing world. So, they offered Ugandan farmers 70,000 Ugandan shillings, or $28 in 2012 exchange rates, per year, per hectare of trees not cut down compared to areas that they were going to. While we saw a double increase in colonoscopy screenings based on the $100 incentive, here in Uganda there is a 50% reduction from about 9% of tree loss to only 4% in the incentivized regions. It's estimated that this could save 3,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide per village from being released into the atmosphere.
1: Now, the study authors have worked out the benefits of this program by adding up the entire potential benefits of every hectare of forest saved for this long in terms of the amount of carbon dioxide they can absorb and fix, in terms of the biodiversity and potential tourism opportunities that the forest can offer, and have come to the conclusion that even if after the programme ends, landowners immediately cut down trees that they wouldn't have protected without the incentive, the benefits still outweigh the cost of that $28 per hectare per year.
0: And co-author Juste de l'Art, which I'm happy I got to say today, does note that economists tend to be a cynical bunch. Many of our colleagues were sure that the landowners would find loopholes in the contract or just move their deforestation to other nearby land, but they didn't. So hey, save yourself, save the world. Seems like a pretty sweet deal to me.
1: Give people more direct reasons to do it. We are simple beasts and need a little bit of instant gratification to get anything done.
0: Just a gentle push. Now, so far we've been talking about individual changes... To help improve yourself and improve the environment, but is that enough? Getting incentives to engage in environmentally friendly farming in Uganda, that's positive. But according to research published in Environmental Research Letters, the most effective steps to tackle climate change on a personal level aren't even being talked about.
1: Now, this is because they involve quite significant effects to your personal life decisions. For example, probably the biggest thing you can do to reduce your impact on the globe is have fewer children. And I mean, especially in the West, most of us are down to one or two kids per family anyway because children are expensive. You've got to send them to school and while they're at school, you've got to pay for everything.
0: And there's certainly different societal pressures in different areas of the world for access to contraceptives, access to abortion, access to fair and equal education, access to health and hygiene facilities. Like, all those things, it's an odds game, down to a certain point. And if you are living in a nice, cosy, flat in Bristol, like we are, then you can start to plan around the life that you live and the future that you want. And if there are more or less children in that, then that is a decision that you get to make. Probably not one that you should enforce from on high, though.
1: Very much not. There's many lessons to be learned from history about not trying to restrict other people's reproductive rights in either direction.
0: Yeah. I know, I feel like there have been conversations about that one particular topic.
1: There certainly have been conversations about many of the other things the press release discusses, so eating a plant-based diet, switching from eating meat to a vegetarian diet, which...
0: Well, here's the thing, they say that these are common steps to reducing one's carbon footprint are not being discussed enough. If you walk around Bristol, there's signposts and billboards up everywhere with pictures of cows and chickens saying, vegetarian isn't enough for him.
1: That is Bristol.
0: It's very Bristol. But also there's the Meat-Free Mondays thing... Quorn had been doing gangbusters, loads and loads of people have been using quorn supplements and alternatives instead of meat, and they're doing just fine as a business. Other things like transatlantic flights, not having those. Lots of people are very much aware of the impact of flying on the environment. Living car-free, lots of people, again, very much aware.
1: But lots of people also can't afford to live car free. We did look up some of the average commuter times. There are more than 4 million people in the UK as of about 2015 who are travelling at least two hours a day for work. It's a fact that many businesses are becoming more centralised. Many things are becoming more focused. And people are commuting further to get to work because the house prices in the place where they do work are just too high to be bearable so it's great to be aware of the impact that you personally are having and the changes you can personally make to your lifestyle but there are a lot of changes that big business that government can be making which will have far more impact than any one person
0: i think those are the conversations that we need to be having
1: instead of putting another runway at Heathrow, you might put another runway somewhere in the north of the country and encourage businesses to move out of London for goodness sake. We have the internet now. There's really very little reason for everything to be focused in one corner of an island.
0: Well, it's tradition, isn't it?
1: It's also traditional to have 10 children and die at 40. What's
0: your point? Now whilst you may think, okay, now is the time to go vegetarian, to not take that flight, to not live like also don't live in London.
1: Yeah, living in London is terrible for you. The smog will take you will your life. bring you yeah. Will bring you to an early death.
0: The damage may already be done. Now this is where we take our names from the top of the episode, me being a billion elephants. Or for sake of comparison, let's say eighty million blue whales. 25,000 Empire State Buildings, 822,000 Eiffel Towers. That is the weight of plastic that has been produced in human history, according to the most recent estimates from the University of California at Santa Barbara.
1: Bearing in mind that large-scale cre- production of these synthetic materials began in the 1950s, that is a lot of plastic, guys!
0: Roughly half produced in the last 13 years, Years,
1: which isn't really that surprising more nations are industrializing and wanting to take part in this consumer culture there are more than seven billion people on earth now
0: so let's put things in a little bit of context here with a quote from one of the authors a dr jambeck who says there are people alive today who remember a world without plastics Looking around the room that we are in, there's a. am staring at a piece of plastic right now. Anyway, but plastics have become so ubiquitous that you can't go anywhere without finding plastic waste in our environment, including our oceans. And this is where the trash vortex comes in.
1: If you Google the term, you will find out that there is a vast patch of assorted rubbish that humans have thrown away that's just swirling around in the middle of the pacific ocean i believe it's visible from space i can believe that i th- i think i heard that on qi and there is ongoing discussion about microplastics with the the sort of scrubby beads that you get in your face wash sometimes those get washed down the plug hole They get washed into rivers, they get washed out to sea. Fish eat them, thinking that they're fish eggs or plankton, and become entirely full of plastic. This is a problem.
0: If you think that now is the time to pause the podcast and put on Plastic Beach by gorillas, then we understand. But you might want to stick around to hear just how awful us humans are being according to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, because even when we're interacting with other human beings who are trying to make the world a better place, trying to understand our place in the universe even, it turns out we just can't help ourselves. And there is a widespread culture of bias and abuse in astronomy and planetary science.
1: According to the press release, this is the first time anyone has looked at this sort of behaviour in a scientific field, which seems bonkers, but if that's true, thank you for getting round to it, I guess.
0: Science is built on historic abuse and misappropriation of funds and information. I mean, you just talk to a biologist, you say Rosalind to a biologist, and before you've finished her name, people will be ripping their hair out saying, Crick, you bastard! Amelia Watson was openly racist. I mean, so.
1: they, they both have things to answer for. Predictably, if you keep track of sort of general trends of human biases and prejudices, it is women of colour who experience the most trouble with this. In fact, there's some really appalling statistics that have come out from this survey, which was administered online in early 2015. Around 40% of women of colour reported feeling unsafe in their places of work as a result of their race and gender, and about 13% of female respondents reported skipping at least one class meeting, fieldwork opportunity or other professional event because they felt unsafe. We've discussed before that there's problems with gender equality and general diversity in the sciences, and... Here is why. It's a hostile environment for many people.
0: And graduate student Catherine Lee, one of the authors of this paper, notes at the end, Those who study workplace climate, including many notable women of colour, have been saying this for a long time. To my knowledge, however, this is the first time that anyone has looked at this in the sciences. How? How have we gone this long without ever thinking you know what maybe these societal biases which we've been aware of for decades that we have seen played out writ large across society in nations across the world maybe people are like that at work too
1: the other things that leaps out of me in this is that about a third of respondents who were white men also reported hearing sexist or racist remarks at work or in classrooms and labs. And if you are one of those white male scientists and you heard somebody being disparaging in a way that could be construed as sexist or sexist or racist and you didn't go, uh, no. Please consider introducing that practice to your work life and you can be part of the solution rather than part of the problem.
0: Today's Eureka Nerd tip. Be a decent human.
1: Try... Standing up for your colleagues, students, peers,
0: use the position of privilege that you are in to help those without it.
1: Even if you hear one of your male colleagues saying to one of your other male colleagues, "You've done that to your hair. What are you, some sort of woman?" Maybe go. That's a bit sexist, Greg. As, apologies to any Gregs. This is not a. This is not aimed at a specific Greg.
0: We are not Gregphobic. Anyway. Moving on to something not quite so much about a bleak, bleak future, but more about a bright start to life. In fact, a bright start to life before you're even out in the world.
1: Specifically, language development. It's something a lot of people have been looking into in very, very young children. For a while, language acquisition is probably among the most exciting skills that babies have. It has become clear that they can be taught to communicate earlier if they're, for example, taught baby sign, rather than having to wait until their fine motor control is good enough to form coherent speech. And it turns out even eight months into a pregnancy, a month before a baby's actually born, it can distinguish between the rhythm of the language its parents speak and
0: another one. So this research from the University of Kansas Medical Center, published in the journal NERA Report, involves what might be my new favourite piece of equipment, the magnetocardiogram, which, as you might guess, is a heartbeat measuring device using magnets, as opposed to ultrasound, which has been typically used to observe and measure anything that's happening in the womb.
1: But it does sort of sound like something you might use to monitor the general well-being of a particular X-man. You know the one,
0: Michael Fassbender's Fitbit.
1: No, never mind Fassbender. We're we Team McCallan, honestly.
0: Ian McCallan's Fitbit. <laughs> I. That's going to be my next Tumblr. <laughs> that's going to be my goal in life, to be <laughs> Ian McKellen's Fitbit.
1: We should email him. Like, Ian, would you like to? Would you like to take on a bear?
0: If so, you can reach us at Eureka Nerdcast on Twitter. Or find us at Eureka Nerdcast at gmail.com.
1: I look forward to hanging out with Saru and McKellen.
0: Now, as you might expect, a fetus in the womb, its hearing is not going to be great. It's really only just got ears, and there's a lot of stuff in the way. In fact, one of the authors, Utako Minai, says that fetuses can hear things like speech, but it's muffled like the adults talking in a Peanuts cartoon. But the rhythm should be preserved and available for the fetus to hear even if the speech itself is muffled. So, using the magnetocardiogram compared to ultrasound, as previous studies have used, two dozen women, averaging roughly eight months pregnant, were examined with speakers speaking English or Japanese, two languages which have very different cadences, very different rhythms and timbres.
1: And importantly, English and Japanese spoken by the same person.
0: So there's no chance of even just the voice throwing them off. And wouldn't you know, at the baby's heart rate responds differently to its mother tongue. Using the magnetocardiogram and the dedicated fetal biomagnometers, which apparently they have, they're able to observe that fetal heart rates changed when babies heard the unfamiliar, rhythmically distinct sound of Japanese compared to when they heard a passage of English speech.
1: That's not the only news we have about language learning this time round. It turns out there is yet more evidence for being bilingual being really great for you this research from the university of washington has been investigating how babies can learn a second language outside the home the university of washington tested a group of babies on an hour of english sessions a day for 18 weeks delivered in parentese and have found even that really quite low level of exposure to the language gets the ball rolling on that second language acquisition.
0: So these sessions ran one hour per day for 18 weeks, and there was a control group who were receiving a standard bilingual program in the school, and both groups were tested, in this case for Spanish and English at the start and the end of this 18-week program. Kids also wore special vests outfitted with lightweight recorders to record their English learning, and those were then analysed to determine how many English words and phrases each child managed to pick up and speak. It turns out that this method of having this parentese class, having infant-directed speech in another language, just kind of being on a baby's level, shows rapid increase in English comprehension and production and significantly outperformed the control group at all ages of all tests in English.
1: And even babies whose home backgrounds include only one language being spoken, showed a big benefit from this. And, I mean, frankly, it suggests that what we should actually do, just swapping babies with people who speak other languages once in a while is gonna do them some good. I feel like I should, you know, encourage some friends who speak other languages to just, like, babysit sometimes.
0: A big bilingual baby bash.
1: Yeah, let's let's just organise a parent and baby group, where you have uh, an English speaking parent swaps their baby with an Arabic speaking parent, and the Arabic speaking parent passes their baby on to a Polish speaking parent, and we just we just pass the babies around
0: like speed dating, but for babies.
1: It's speed dating, but for language acquisition.
0: Speed babies.
1: Just share the babies, share the babies, share that language. Save the world. Maybe not save the world, but you know, all the English-speaking countries basically could do with adopting some sort of early language, educa- early second language education. Because I, I think they do teach you a little bit of French in in primary school now.
0: We learnt Frère Jacques in year six.
1: Yeah, but it, I mean, in my day, we had we had nothing. You got to year seven, and all of a sudden, they were like, "Oh, now you've got to learn a second language."
0: Just in time for that neuroplasticity to really take hold, set in, and, oh, the damage is done.
1: And then age 12, they they were like, oh, you can start learning Russian. It's a whole new alphabet. And we were like, what?
0: It is embarrassing when traveling and you go somewhere and you're like, I don't speak anything but English.
1: And everyone speaks such good English. And you're like, And German I... and
0: Dutch and Italian and like, Fr- there are so many more multilingual Europeans.
1: And you're like, this is embarrassing.
0: But you don't need to be embarrassed anymore because we have taught you the secrets of the universe. We have told you how you can make your life better, improve your environment, even make a little bit of money if you don't mind cameras going places. So we're going to let you go out into the world and lead healthy, successful, productive lives, but just a few quick words to tidy you on your way, a few pieces of research to keep you bubbling over with excitement until we see you next time. Did you know that... Your day-to-day experiences will affect your awareness of how old you are.
1: Just like your day-to-day experiences will affect your awareness of any number of things.
0: Because that's how experiencing the world works.
1: Like, oh, someone shouted at me at work today. I'm feeling more aware of being mentally ill right now. Oh, I saw a small child on the bus today. I'm feeling more aware of being alone in the world right now
0: thank you north carolina state university for discovering consciousness
1: (laughs) there probably is a point but i'm not interested enough in the press release to search for it i'm so sorry
0: meanwhile did you know art therapy that's it Art, art therapy works
1: Specifically, art-based groups benefit individuals with mental health conditions. This one looks mostly at participation in things like choirs, which are also sociable. So they probably are quite good for your mental health, really. So yeah. Build a support group. Do something fun.
0: Art therapy. If you have become increasingly aware of how old you are, then let us know things that you remember from your childhood in those long distant years long past at Eureka Nerdcast on Twitter or send us an email to eureka nerdcast at gmail.com.
1: Honestly, we love doing a bit of reminiscing about like being nineties kids. Pogs. We had so many pogs and Tazos, it was absurd. Slammers? Pokemon cards.
0: Playing Nintendo. Except you can still do that. In fact, you can now play old Nintendo.
1: That strange gap between the Northern Ireland Peace Agreement and 9-11, where it was okay to just, like, leave a bag lying around?
0: A brief glimpse of peace in a terrifying world. Yeah. Also, you can leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or Deezer or Podomatic. Wherever
1: you're listening to us. There's
0: so many ways to listen to us. Please. Let your friends listen to us as well. Send them links, send them files, send them coded messages that they'll never fully understand.
1: And if you leave rates and reviews, people you don't even know might be able to find us. You might help a complete stranger find joy and or some sarcastic science news.
0: Really? What more could you ask for? Nothing more. On that note, it's bye-bye from me.
1: And goodbye from me.